0: Welcome to City Life. I know out of all the demographics in that video, uh, mine was mine's the barista. Uh, Spent a lot of time at Starbucks. If you're ever looking like, where is is Pastor Justin on a Wednesday or a Friday? I'm usually parked up at the Chesapeake Square Starbucks, working on my sermon, meeting with somebody, and handing out reach cards to all those baristas. So I don't think there's any here tonight. Not that I would want to call them out, but uh, just know... They've been covered. If You're like, man, I need to hit a Starbucks with reach cards. I got them. Okay, maybe go to Harborview, maybe the one at the, the end of the bridge, the James River Bridge now that just opened up. But I got Chesapeake Square, Starbucks on lock. They are getting reach cards. They are getting invites. So uh, that's 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 my demographic from that video. But be inviting somebody. Like Nate said, people expect in this season to attend a church. And maybe they don't go normally. Maybe they're somebody that goes on Christmas and Easter and they're just looking for somewhere to go. Man, let's be inviting so that people can come out and, and really celebrate what is this demonstration of God's love on Easter through Jesus Christ. And we've been in this series called God's Love Language. Pictures worth a thousand words and it's bridged this gap from Valentine's Day, our culture's celebration of love to Easter, which again is God's perfect demonstration of love through Jesus Christ. And as we've been in this series, uh, we've been pulling from this quote that inspired this series by Billy Graham, where he says that God loves you and he loves you with a love that you don't know anything about because there's no human love comparable to divine love. So many of us are familiar with 1 John 4, 8, where it says God is love. We're familiar with the song we learned as kids, that Jesus loves me, this I know. But there is a depth and a meaning to that love that can be hard to grasp because it transcends the love we know as humans. If God's ways are above our ways, his thoughts are above our thoughts, how much also is his love just above the love that we can give? But I love that God in his grace and God in his love gives us pictures. Gives us images and and metaphors of his love in scripture so that we can better understand it. So that we can better understand his love for us and the love that we're supposed to demonstrate for others. So that's what we've been looking at in this series. What do these pictures mean in terms of God's love for us? What do these pictures mean in terms of my love for the people God has placed around me? And you might even think, well, why pictures? Well, again, like the, 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 the subheading of the sermon series says, pictures can be worth a thousand words was Aristotle that said, the soul does not think without a picture. And he said this long before we truly understand our brains. We still don't understand all of our brains. But as we learn more and more, we realize that this is true, that we so often learn using images. We think using images. We remember using images. Scientists say about 90% of what's stored up here is pictures and images in our minds. So it's almost like God knew what he was doing when he placed images and pictures in Scripture to help us better understand his love. And there's many in Scriptures, but we focused on six in this series. We focused on the clay and the potter, the the sheep and the shepherd, the, the, the servant and his master, the child and his father, two friends, and finally tonight, this love between a man and a woman. Expressed in the marriage covenant as bride and groom. So we've been giving out this love travel mug and, and a gift card to Starbucks. So since we're celebrating marriage tonight, uh, wh- who has been married here the longest? Uh, 20 years or more, your anniversary. 25 years or more. 30 or more. 35 or more. 40 or more. 45 or more. Really? Yeah, Anybody else? That was it, right? I'm going to run this back to you guys. For how many years have you guys been married? 48. God bless you both. Thank you for setting an example for us all. We love you guys. Good to see you. So as I make my way back up to the stage, it's all right, I'll do cardio. There's a quote by Ravi Zacharias. I love me some Ravi. Uh, we'll, we're actually quoting him twice tonight from the same book. If you've got a, a child that's maybe on the verge of dating, maybe you're dating yourself, looking forward to marriage, he's got a great book called I, Isaac, Take Thee, Rebecca. It's great. It's not 300 pages. You can give it to a teenager because it's only like 150 pages, right? 300-page book, you gave it to me as a teenager. There better be like a, a Michael Jordan rookie card in the middle. Otherwise, I'm not reading through that whole thing. But, but that's a great book if you've got somebody who's dating or looking to date. I, Isaac, Take Thee, Rebecca. But in this book, he says that I'm convinced that marriage – is at once the most powerful union and the most misunderstood relationship we can experience. Like everything of intrinsic value, its use or abuse determines delight or devastation. To understand marriage, God's way, is to carry a cherished dream into reality. To violate its built-in pattern is to mangle beauty and plunder one's own riches. So he says it's both the most powerful union and most misunderstood relationship. This is from a man who I think has a lot of wisdom. But you even go thousands of years ago to the man who has the most wisdom in his generation, Solomon. Even he struggled to understand how a man should love a woman. He says in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 18 through 19, he says, There are three things that amaze me. No, four things that I don't understand. That's a poetic device to say that this fourth one's a doozy. I'm going to list three, but then you should pay attention to the fourth one. He says, How an eagle glides through the sky, how a snake slithers on a rock, how a ship navigates the ocean, and how a man loves a woman. And you might say, well, duh, it's kind of clear Solomon didn't understand how a man should love a woman because he had all those hundreds of, of wives and concubines, like maybe start with monogamy, you dummy, right? But if God is lofty and if love is lofty, How much sense does it make that that sometimes marriage can be mysterious? And even Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, after laying down some of the most challenging texts we have in Scripture on marriage, he closes his thoughts in verses 31 through 32. And he says, as the Scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. He says, this is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. It is a great mystery. That's why I recommend books on marriage. Because if you go look in yourself, if you type marriage book into Amazon, you get 300 plus results. Just 300, or excuse me, 300,000. A lot more zeros than just 300. 300,000 and there's a little plus symbol. There's so many books on marriage because we're perpetually trying to figure out what Paul calls this mystery. But Paul also gives us an important note. He points to God's love. That, that marriage points to God's love. It's an image that the world would see God's love through marriage. It's an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. And when we look in this book, in the Bible, it begins with Adam and Eve becoming one in marriage. And then if you keep reading past Ephesians, you get to Revelation, you see the wedding feast between Christ and his church. And we see that marriage between individuals from the beginning of time points forward to Christ and his church, points towards Christ and his people, which when I was... A single, about 22 years old, only been saved for about a year. That, when somebody broke that to me, that blew my mind. Because I was like a lot of people in my generation who kind of saw marriage as a means of self-fulfillment and status that was accompanied by sexual satisfaction. And it, and that's it. That's, that was my picture of marriage. But if you read the Bible, God didn't create marriage as an end, but as a means to an end. Right, the, Your marriage begins to paint this picture the moment you guys say your vows of Jesus Christ and his love for the church. There are supposed to be each one of our marriages pictures worth a thousand words, images that people can behold to see God's love through this covenant relationship of marriage. And what I want to look, look at tonight in terms of God's love is that God expresses his love through covenants, through covenants. And, and one of the pictures of this covenant, one of many is, is this covenant of marriage. So as I was going to scripture and praying about how I was going to tackle this sermon and this image, I went to, you know, the parable of the wedding feast, the wedding feast in heaven, again, in the book of Revelation, you know, we could celebrate that. But as I prayed about it and studied, I kept getting pulled back to this Old Testament book of Hosea. It says in Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, it says, when that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. Then it says in verse 19, I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. Those are some beautiful verses. Right? Those are some verses that you, know, you would make, a, what are they called, a, a, the, those images on you version, those calligraphy pictures that people post to Instagram. Those are beautiful passages that we, that we would behold as beautiful even in a vacuum. But when you begin to understand the the book and the story that those verses are pulled out of, there's an even greater depth of meaning. You know, two weeks ago, we talked about the image of the son and the father. We looked at the the parable of the prodigal son. Well, tonight, we'll be looking at the the marriage of, of Hosea to Gomer. And you could call this the story of the prodigal spouse. Only it wasn't a story. It was this lived out illustration wasn't a parable. God called Hosea to live this, to be this for the people around him. It's a challenging thought. You read uh, chapter one in the second verse. God says to Hosea that when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. So theologians have struggled for centuries to make sense of this bizarre command. Was it that God knew she would be adulterous and this was like Hosea looking back retrospectively? Was this uh, just... a a spiritual analogy and spiritual unfaithfulness and not physical? Did she merely take up the garb and appearance of a prostitute and not really step into it? Was it all an allegory and a vision and not really uh, real? People try to make sense of this command, and really when you read the story, there's no reason to believe that it wasn't literal, but it's hard to make sense of. But what's powerful to me is that Hosea, to his credit, he obeys God even when it doesn't make sense. Like Abraham, When God said, hey, go sacrifice your son, Abraham responded in faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But God never says to Hosea, pause, just playing, kind of like he did to Abraham, right? Hosea follows through, and he walks through this painful roller coaster season, and it's a reminder, this thought we opened with, that God's ways are higher than our ways. Sometimes we don't understand them. They're not based on opinion polls. They're not based on votes by members. All Hosea knew is this marriage would serve a higher purpose. It would paint a picture of God's love for Israel, and people would look at his family, and they would learn something about God. Israel couldn't see God, right? They couldn't see Yahweh, but they could see Hosea. They could see his marriage. They could see his family and how it all played out. You know, so often in life, we don't understand why things happen. And so often we don't get like Hosea did because Hosea gets this picture and purpose of what he was about to go through. Sometimes we're more like Job. We're crying out to the sky, why? Why is this happening? And God's response sometimes is not an answer as much as it is his presence. We might not understand why in this life until we get to heaven and he can explain it to us in person. But we see that just like Job, just like Abraham, just like Hosea, God can use our lives, lived in faithfulness to him to teach people something about his power, his love and his grace. Hosea was a prophet, so you can't ignore the fact that he was called to speak as we are. But we see in the story of Hosea that our personal testimony can become our most persuasive ministry. What God is doing in your life and how you live it out faithfully, that can be some of the most persuasive ministry that flows from your life. His obedience through bizarre circumstances, it challenges me to be faithful to God's calling, even when I can't connect all the dots. And I've said it to others. I'll say it to you tonight. Don't let what you don't understand keep you from obeying what you do understand to be true. Or or to put it a different way, don't let what you don't understand keep you from uh, obeying who you do understand to be true. Faith doesn't mean you have all the answers now. Faith doesn't mean that you have every detail of the future before you walk into it. Sometimes faith means you obey God's command, even when your flesh is still spinning, thinking, how is this, this going to work out? How does this make any sense? How could he possibly work this for good? But you see Hosea and Gomer's marriage, it plays out in the first three chapters. Chapter one, Hosea takes Gomer as his wife, as commanded, and she bears him a child. Then there are two other children who, who Hosea, he's not connected to their conception. It's quite possible that he wasn't even their father. Then in chapter 2, we see accusations confronting Gomer's unfaithfulness. Ultimately, Gomer leaves to pursue her lusts and desires. Yet, even in this chapter 2 of Hosea, you get pockets, verses, that point towards hope and point towards grace. And then finally in chapter 3, we see the restoration of their relationship through Hosea's persistent love. And for all intents and purposes, we get a fairly happy ending between Hosea and Gomer for the two of them as again we see them at the end of the story together in marriage the lived out parable of the prodigal wife for all intents and purposes it ends well but just like the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son we talked about two weeks ago we realize it's not just about one son it's about two and just like in the parable of the the lost son the older son at the end of the story we don't really know if he's ever going to restore his relationship with his father We realize when we read Hosea, it's not just about his relationship with Gomer, but this is pointing to the Israelites and their relationship with God. And we don't know, as we're reading Hosea, what is their response going to be? God connects Gomer and Hosea's experience to the unfaithfulness of Israel to God. Unfaithfulness to his commands. You see that they were oppressing the poor. They were exercising injustice. They were being deceitful in their dealings. They were even worshiping other gods like Baal. And the prophecy of Hosea is powerful because it connects Israel's sin to these images of prostitution and adultery to show just how damaging our sin is to our relationship with God. You don't wink away sin. You just shrug off sin. Hosea 2, you read Hosea 2, there's imagery in there that's tough to read. And it almost is is PG compared to, you look at Ezekiel and some of the similar prophecies that he prophesied that, that are a higher rating. Sin is not something we... Just overlook, it's a devastating betrayal in our relationship with God. And Hosea is like a bucket of cold water on the face and on the head of anybody who's cavalier with sin. In the eyes of God, your sin is akin to adultery. Idolatry per Hosea, it's the same as adultery. Now, this image of idolatry, it's tough for us because in our modern culture, we're not out there worshiping gods like Baal. It's a foreign analogy that doesn't readily speak to us in the 21st century. We're not uh, intersecting many perverse religious cults that honor pagan gods. But we all understand adultery. Maybe we've experienced it. We've heard about it. We've seen it. You know, again, we talked about the prodigal son a couple weeks ago. It was after that, that City Life Suffolk mentioned that on Netflix, um, there's a, a documentary. I guess you could call it a documentary right now called The Heart of Man. It's powerful. Uh, The images are a retelling of the story of the prodigal son. But within this retelling, there's people telling their stories just about how they'd stumbled into sin, how they snowballed into sin. But then how God's grace met them like it did the, the prodigal son. It's a powerful documentary. You see stories of prodigal husbands, wives, spouses, gomers. And none of these stories you realize as they're telling them, none of it just happened at the flip of a switch. And that's how it is with most of our sin and our adultery towards God. It doesn't just happen usually at the flip of the switch. Usually it's a slow fade. It's a deterioration of our relationship. And there's two key ingredients that you see in these stories of people that committed physical adultery with their spouse that are paralleled sometimes in our relationship with God. And the first is, is just dissatisfaction, disappointment, where the grass seems to become greener on the other side. In our relationship with God, it happens when we feel like God failed us. We're disappointed with how something worked out. We don't see how that could have been God's plan. It just seems like he failed. And we begin to shift where we place our trust. Do we trust that God is sufficient to meet our every need? Do we trust that God is sufficient to meet our every desire? We would say often with our mouths, yes. But how often do we look elsewhere to relationship, to finances, to our own strength to give us security or to give us peace? Especially again when we feel like God failed us over here and we don't understand. And if we can't trust God to meet our physical, emotional, and spiritual well being, then we'll naturally begin to look elsewhere. Like the Israelites, they looked to Baal. But that leads to a second ingredient, and that's simply diverted affection, divided affection. Where you begin to invest in another relationship, making deposits and receiving deposits emotionally that are outside of your relationship with your spouse. And diverted affection leads to a divided affection. Often these people and their stories, they're living a duplicitous life before they ever break it off with their spouse or they ever get caught. They're leading two separate lives. They're living a life of divided affection and divided attention And we realize that the Israelites' worship of God was also diverted, divided, it was convoluted. They had synchronized their worship of God with the worship of Baal to an extent that the people at that time, some of them thought that that Baal and Yahweh were just two different names for the same God. It becomes so confused and convoluted, their worship. Israel's faith had adapted to Canaanite culture rather than going out and transforming Canaanite culture. How often Does our faith take the same steps? Where instead of affecting our culture, we become cultured. We become affected by pluralism, the pervasiveness of violence, materialism, racism, sexism, all the isms and schisms, the lack of absolutes that result in my truth and your truth and this truth and that truth. We synchronize these beliefs with the Bible's message to where our faith becomes a compartmentalized belief among many beliefs. And there's no absolute truth, transcendent truth that defines our lives. And we, we've divided our affection. We've diverted our affection. And it's the first step in the blinding process of sin where you take your eyes off Christ and you begin to look at all these other things for, for security, for, for hope, for strength. And we become blinded. It says in Hosea chapter 5 verse 4, it's a powerful verse. It says, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. It's as if they've reached the proverbial point of no return. That phrase comes from uh, uh, pilots and planes. That's where it originated, where you've taken off, you're flying, and you reach a point where you don't have enough gas to get back to where you took off from. You can only move forward and hopefully get to where you're going. Sometimes I think in our relationship with God, we feel like we've reached this point where there's not enough grace to get back to where we started from in our relationship with God or in our relationship with others. So we simply keep going. We found this point of no return. And for Gomer, she had reached not just a proverbial, but in some cases, a literal point of no return. And in that culture, there was cause for her to be publicly killed and executed wasn't just a matter of Hosea might be bitter, it's Hosea might kill her. The wages of her sin and her actions in that culture could have been death and stoning. And for us spiritually, we see in Romans that universally the wages of sin is death. In Hosea chapter 8 verse 1, it says, Sound the alarm. The enemy descends like an eagle on the people of the Lord, for they have broken my covenant and revolted against my law. See, God, again, he expresses his love in covenants, in covenant relationships with his people. And they had broken their covenant with God. And we see two ideas here regarding God's covenant with Israel. First, that they'd sinned against their covenant partner, God, and therefore they would suffer his judgment. But we also see throughout Hosea, even in the same chapter, that God loves his people dearly and will forgive their sins and restore the blessing. They're so hard to reconcile these two different perspectives that that some people hold to the belief that somebody came along later and added these other verses in the book of Hosea to add some positive stuff. But to understand how all this could make sense, we have to understand what what a covenant is. What does it mean to be in a covenant relationship? Because the word itself, it sounds archaic, right? Is, Is there a more modern term? But modern society really doesn't have a category for covenants. But in the Old Testament and in Scripture, when God begins to define his love for his people, when God begins to define his relationship with his people in the Old Testament, he does it through covenants again and again. We see that a covenant is a relationship, but it's a relationship more loving and intimate than a standard legal relationship, yet it's more binding and enduring than a merely personal relationship. It's this blend and this balance of law and love. What's Important to note is in our modern culture and society, we so often make everything ordered around our fulfillment as an individual. Like, again, I did as a single at about 21, 22 years old. My picture of marriage is what will fulfill me, make me happy. And I'll be what I'll, I should be as long and to the degree that the other person is who they should be. Right? As long as they're holding up their end of the deal, I'll hold up my end of the deal. If you aren't, then I'm out. But at the heart of a covenant, A covenant says that I'll be what I should be, whether you are what you should be or not. And that goes so against our culture and our consumer mentality with relationship and our me first mentality with relationships. In a covenant, basically, you're saying this relationship supersedes my needs, my wants, my desires. It's it's our relationship. It's about us. But a covenant only works if both parties say this, right? Otherwise, it's an exercise and exploitation as one person enters in knowing that the other has to keep their end of the deal regardless of what we do. That's why amidst all the love and promises in these covenants, there's also laws and consequences that God gives for disobedience. There's consequences that form the backbone of these covenants, give it value, these commitments. And God gave the Israelites a code of conduct, expectations uh, for their religious and moral lives. These represent their end of the covenant promises. Now, this is kind of like us dipping our toes into the deep end of the pool when it comes to talking about covenants. But as you begin to look at Scripture, the issue is that the Israelites weren't very faithful and obedient very commonly. As you begin to read through the Bible. And as a result, this idea of covenant And its mix of law and love, it cuts to the very heart of the Bible. Because there are times where if you read the Bible from cover to cover, there's times in Scripture where it seems like the blessings are contingent on whether the Israelites obey. And it shows that God is perfectly just. He says things like, you know, I can't or I can only if this happens or you must do this. But then other times in Scripture, he speaks as if he'll bless his people regardless. Right, he says things like, I'll never leave, I'll never give up, I'll never forsake, and you realize that God is also perfectly loving. Sometimes in the same chapter, again, you read Hosea chapter two and other chapters in the Bible, sometimes you see both pictures and you're like, How does this even work out? It's the tension under the surface of the Bible. As you read through every other plot, there's this tension. Because you see God's people failing again and again, and the question comes up Will God give in to these people and accept whatever they do and forfeit His holiness, or will He in His holiness? justifiably give up on them. But then what about his faithfulness? All these questions arise. How is his love and character going to be expressed in this covenant? And it doesn't just apply to the people in the Bible. It applies to me, and it applies to you, because I don't know about you, I'm not perfectly obedient and faithful myself. We as believers, I think, sometimes can navigate this tension poorly. So much of of maturity in our faith is being able to, to navigate this balance and this tension. Because sometimes the pendulum swings too far to one direction or the other. For some in their relationship with God, the law is primary and love is conditional. So you better be good or or God's love will run out, his grace will run out. And that results in extreme guilt your entire life. But then if you take that pendulum and swing it all the way to the other side, love is primary and the law becomes conditional. God's going to love you anyway, so don't take it so seriously, all these laws. And that can result in spiritual laziness and, and apathy. We struggle to resolve this tension because we see in scripture God has sworn to bless his people, yet God has sworn not to bless disobedience. So are the blessings of God in this covenant conditional on the law, or are they unconditional based on his love? It's this tension throughout scripture. We'll come back to the solution later, but it's the same tension that we find in the marriage covenant between Hosea and Gomer. Gomer has been unfaithful. How is Hosea going to respond? And how he responds prophetically speaks to how God will respond to. Our unfaithfulness. Chapter 3 opens in verse 1 that God says to the prophet Hosea, go show love to your wife again. And here we see clearly this picture of love within a covenant. That love is just as much an act of the will as it is acting based on how we feel or how we feel in the moment. Again, there's another story in this book Rabbi Zacharias wrote where his brother uh, in that culture, it's common to have arranged marriages. And his brother hadn't met the woman yet, didn't even know what she looked like. This is before Facebook. He can, you know, I had an arranged marriage. I'd be up now on Facebook. You could stalk somebody, you could know every detail of their life, what they look like before you ever met them. But this is so long ago, he had never seen her before, just knew her name. Didn't know any of her background, just knew that they were going to be married because this was an arranged marriage. And Ravi, at the airport, as they're about to meet her, he pulls his brother aside like, are you crazy? Are you really going to go through with this? And he says his brother pulls him aside and he says to him, write this down and don't ever forget it. Love is as much a question of the will as it is of emotion. And if you will to love somebody, you can Now, again, maybe that's swinging a pendulum too far in one direction. Clearly, you need emotion because without emotion, marriage is a drudgery. But at the same time, without the will being engaged, marriage can be a mockery. You need both because without will behind your love, your love can come with an expiration date. Because the warm fuzzies, they run out eventually, right? The infatuation phase. And if that is the measure of whether you will to love or not, then it's like a contract that gets terminated. But that's not a covenantal relationship. That's not what it looks like, God's love for us. Because God tells Hosea, go show your wife love again. Love for Hosea in this moment, it was a choice, right? He had to choose. It wasn't just a noun that described a feeling. It was a verb that that showed he was exercising his will. Go show her love again. But just picture, picture this team of Hosea going to look for Gomer. Going out in public into the marketplace. Right, she dabbled in prostitution. He probably had to poke his head into some shady establishment, saying, have you seen my wife? Have you seen my Gomer? And in that day, merchants, no doubt, would chase people away because they're bothering their customers. But this wasn't some random person. This wasn't some anonymous face in the crowd. They knew who Hosea was. They knew his pitiful situation. And I'm sure some people had pity on him and said, yeah, I'll ask around. I'll keep an eye out. I'll keep an ear out to where she might be. I'm sure some other people probably gave him their two cents, like give up on her. What are you even doing? She's worthless. Why are you even trying to chase her down? This was a messy and complicated scene as Hosea went to find Gomer. It was painful, but it was also prophetic because right here in verse one, if you keep reading verse one, God says, go find her and then love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Again, Hosea's response prophetically prepares us for God's response in Jesus. Matter of fact, verse 5 in chapter 3 is what many consider a prophetic pointing towards the coming of Jesus Christ. We realize that Jesus, he's he's our Hosea, that he came into the, the, the wilderness and the brokenness of sinful humanity, and he wasn't just some random face in the crowd. People recognized him as the Messiah, this lover and friend of sinners. The Pharisees gave him their two cents. Why are you wasting your time with these worthless people? Why would you spend your time pursuing these sinners? Yet, as we celebrate on Good Friday, we see that Jesus died on a cross for these very people. See, Hosea came to seek and save his wife. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke that he came to seek and save the lost. Hosea's name means salvation, and we realize that the fruit of Jesus' mission was our salvation. But don't just put yourself in Hosea's shoes. We often love to put ourselves in the hero's shoes. Like, I'm Hosea, or I'm, I'm Moses instead of the hard-headed Israelites, or I'm David fighting Goliath rather than the Israelites cowering in, in the camp. See, in this passage, we're not Hosea. Jesus is our Hosea. We're Gomer. And just think about, what would you have done if, if Hosea came around that corner? You know, there's, a, there's a possibility she ran and embraced him, but again, with circumstances as they were, there's a good chance she hung her head in shame. Wouldn't make eye contact. He's coming around this corner. She doesn't know how he's going to respond. And she wasn't due grace. She had abandoned him and the three kids. And he could have, again, had her stoned based on their culture's conditions. And maybe that's your response to God's presence. Shame. That's why in worship, it's kind of hard to open up. When you begin to talk about God with other people, it's kind of hard to open up because it almost feels like if he stepped into our presence, we should run the other way. And we feel this tension. Again, this tension. Are the blessings of God conditional on the law or unconditional in love? Because, yeah, God swore his love, but he also said he punished sin. And if that's you tonight, let me encourage you by what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. Paul says, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scripture, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. So this tension, this question throughout the Bible, are the blessings of God, his his love, are they conditional or unconditional? The answer is yes. (laughs) Are they conditional? Yes. Are they unconditional? Yes. (laughs) Because Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the covenant so we could receive the blessing unconditionally. Jesus earned the blessing and took the curse and then left the blessing for us. If you can understand this, then you begin to understand the beauty of the gospel that Jesus completes and he fills the covenant in spite of our sin, in spite of our faithlessness, in spite of our running away, that God, like Hosea, he's the lover of the unfaithful, he's the keeper of covenants, he's the rescuer of the repeat offender, that our Hosea has come, Jesus has come, and he's forgiven and he's restored us. And maybe that's a reality you've heard again and again, and you've given your life to him, and you've thanked him for being your Savior, and you're following him as Lord. But even still, there should be three responses in our hearts as we reflect on this yet again. The first is paradoxical obedience. Paradoxical obedience. You realize that the law of God, right, it's the conditions of the covenant, and it's, it's meant to be taken seriously, so seriously that because we broke those conditions of the covenant, Jesus Christ had to die. Somebody had to die. That's how serious they are. But because Jesus died, when I fail, and I will fail, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Your obedience is a way of saying thank you to God, not earning your way into God's graces. And the paradox is this, that you will resist sin like crazy, but you never have a sense of condemnation when you fall into it. Because you realize the, the, the weight of God's commands. You'll resist sin like crazy. But when you do stumble and when you do fail, because none of us are perfect, you don't have to break under the weight of shame. There's paradoxical obedience. And then there's also radical trust when you can understand this covenant and what it means. Again, how do you know that the other person isn't exploiting you? How do you know that the other person will sacrifice everything for you, uphold their end of the deal for you? None of our spouses are perfect. All our spouses stumble, yet we trust them. We trust them. How much more can we trust God? How much more can we trust Jesus, not only because he was perfect, but he also already took the plunge and laid down his life for us? There's paradoxical obedience. There's radical trust. And if I got the worship team come up, hopefully for each one of us, there's a reciprocated pursuit, a reciprocated pursuit. I once heard it said by an artist named Propaganda, he said, worth value, and beauty is not determined by some innate quality, but by the length for which the owner would go to possess them. That worth, value, and beauty is not an innate quality, but it's determined by the length the owner would go to possess them. So consider this, the length Jesus went to pursue humanity was from the throne room of God stepping into humanity and ultimately dying on this lonely hill at Golgotha on a cross for you. For me, you were the object of that pursuit. That speaks to your worth and your beauty and your value. Stacey Eldridge, she once wrote a book called Captivating, and she wrote that we desire to possess a beauty that is worth pursuing, worth fighting for, and a beauty that is core to who we truly are. We want a beauty that can be seen, beauty that can be felt, beauty that affects others, a beauty all our own to unveil. The story of your life is also the story of the long and passionate pursuit of your heart by the one who knows you best and loves you most. Sometimes in our life, the fear is if this person really knew me, they they wouldn't love you. Yet God knows you best and loves you most. Maybe tonight you feel like Gomer. You've crossed the point of no return. You couldn't possibly go home to God. There's not enough grace to cover everything you've done. How can you look your Hosea in the eyes again? But Jesus is our Hosea, and he pursued us, and he pursues us today, and may we tonight reciprocate that pursuit. There's some powerful verses in Hosea. In in Hosea chapter 7, verse 13, God says, I long to redeem them. I want to redeem them, but they do not cry out to me from their hearts says in chapter 6, verse 3, Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. He will respond to us as surely as the arrival of the dawn. As we stand, if we could stand, as we go back into worship, may we make that the cry of our hearts, that we might know the Lord press on to know him and he will respond to us as surely as the arrival of the dawn. That Jesus has pursued us, but that reality of Easter defines the current reality that he still pursues us. He still longs for relationship with us. As we said earlier, he still knocks on the door of our heart and longs to have fellowship and communion with us. As we close in worship, we'll come back in prayer, but as we close in worship, can you make this the stance and posture of your heart that says, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to press on to know you. And I know that you'll respond as surely as the arrival of the dawn. As it says in James 4, 8, when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. May we take this opportunity, the next five to ten minutes, to draw near to him and trust in his name. Again, the... Beautiful name of Jesus, the powerful name of Jesus, the mounting, moving name of Jesus, the redeeming name of Jesus, the the name of Jesus that pursues us and redeems us. Lord God, we worship you in this place tonight, Jesus. And in your